tragic end of the six-day siege. 19 hostages, including the three Britons, are safe. The end came with an assault on the building by the Army's Special Air Services Regiment, the SAS, not long after gunmen had killed two hostages and pushed the body of one out onto the embassy steps. They threatened to kill another hostage every half hour. It ended with three gunmen dead, one in hospital and another in police custody. Kate Aidy watched Monday, today's the events. political prisoners in Iran be released. On the evening of May the 5th, they killed the Iranian press attaché and announced that they would kill a hostage every half hour. The SAS were called in to save the remaining 19 hostages. One officer was lowered from the roof and threw a stun grenade into the building. An explosive charge was detonated to blow in a first floor window. Hostage, policeman Trevor Locke, appeared at a window and was ordered back inside by police marksmen. A former SAS man who was part of the dramatic raid on the 1980 Iranian embassy siege has died. John McAleese was on holiday in Greece when it's believed he suffered a heart attack. Mr McAleese, who was 61, led the team which stormed the embassy, rescuing 19 hostages. Two years ago, his son, Sergeant Paul McAleese, was killed by a roadside bomb in Afghanistan. Introduce myself, uh, John McAleese. I think everybody knows me as Mac. Spent 23 years in the British Army, six and a half engineers and 16 and a half Special Air Service regiment. Most people would have heard of some of my exploits, namely the Iranian Embassy, uh, where I was sort of captured on film, as you might say, uh, going in through the front window without being asked. Um, I've served practically every country in the world while I was with the regiment, uh, seen quite a few things, some good, some not so good, uh, but at the end of the day, I like to think uh, I came away a better person, uh, having been involved in these things. Uh, I must say, uh, I did enjoy myself while I was in the regiment, uh, made a lot of good friends and met a lot of strange and wonderful people and basically had a real good time. GlobalRecon.net giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, uh, Chantel Taylor, former British Army combat medic. And we have a special guest on with us. His name is Rusty Furman. And Rusty is a former SAS staff sergeant. And he was the team leader of the blue team during the Iranian embassy siege. Uh, Rusty, how's it going? Uh, it's going fine, thanks. Chantel, how you doing? Yeah, good. I'm just when you when you read that out about Rusty, I'm still in awe. It's yeah. still like it's kind of feels weird to have someone like Rusty on. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, we're, you know, we're gonna get into it and talk about Rusty's background and and you know, kind of leading up to that. But I mean that that incident was the really the first time that the world got a glimpse of what this uh, you know counterterrorism hostage rescue is really all about. And it, it, it really kind of shocked the world when it happened, you know? 
Well, that's right. I mean, um, the late 70s, we had the hijackings of the aircraft. That seemed to be the thing of the day. And then that particular time, then you fast forward through to 1980, 37 years ago. Uh, and then the um, six um, bad guys came over, took the on April the 30th, 1980. And um, that siege lasted for six days until the resolution was put in on the 5th of May. And the mission, of course, was to rescue the hostages. And that's exactly um, what the red and blue team of B Squadron did all those years ago. When you say that, though, Rusty, do you, do you realise, I mean, do you, not that you wouldn't realise with all the news coverage that it receives, but do you realise how how iconic that that situation is, like in this day and age, to people, you know, that you, people that weren't even born that are now special forces um all over the world not just in the uk they would still look at that as like really an iconic feature in our world well that's right you know it was unfortunate the americans not long earlier had um, an incident in iran um that didn't go down too well and then of course a few weeks later this particular incident in the iran embassy took place and to everybody watching now let's not be funny about this that was never supposed to be shown on tv the whole of the front of the embassy itself part of the plan was if the assault did go in and it did go in obviously as everybody knows it was supposed to be smoked off so nobody could see none of the press out the front on kensington road could see and what happened is the prime minister said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to show the world how we deal with terrorists. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And there's nobody's more surprised than <laughs> me when I finished that operation a few hours later to see it being run live on TV when Mrs. Margaret Thatcher, the then prime minister, oh, wow. was sat with us in Regent's Park barracks. And we were all going, what happened there? <laughs> Somewhere in there, the plan was changed and it was shown live, interrupted the snooker. Cliff Thorburn was playing Alex Higgins <laughs> in the final of the Embassy World Championship. And of course, we were to that in between our sort of time in between doing, you know, getting ready. And we watched that for the days prior to the assault going in. But that's so typical. Why do you say that? It's so typical of soldiers. They, you, you know, you're you're ready to do this this sort of clinical clinical finishing um, incident, you know, recovery, and you sat watching the snooker. You know, it's almost like you couldn't write that. Well, the, the thing is that um, nobody knew how long it was going to last. You know, yeah. any time they could have put their hands up and walked out. So nobody knew how long the incident was going to last. So in between standing to, standing down, and that's when deadlines become, you know, um, a, a bit more critical. You stand to, get ready just in case something wrong, and then you go to rescue the hostages. So you have to have a bit of an outlet because, let's be honest, yeah. on the 5th of May 1980, me, I was supposed to be playing in a cup final uh, football back in Hereford for my local football team. So there we were watching snooker instead. Yeah. And, and and that's the way it is, you know. It's not winding down, but you're no, something amazing, yeah. All of your kit on, weapon in your hand, respirator <laughs> on top of your head or on your elbow, ready to go, body armor on, everything ready to go at the drop of it. And we were next door, the neighbors from hell. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's a film right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's um so Rusty, so we'll we'll get into a little more details of the incident itself, but can we go back a little bit and talk about you know what motivated you to join the uh British Army? Um what motivated me was lack of motivation. <laughs> I was actually forced into the British Army as a boy soldier, age 15. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. in those days, it was boy soldier. I had long hair, Cuban heel boots. I was a Rolling Stones fan. I was the last person that would have wanted to go into the military. I was five foot two. I weighed about seven stone, soaking wet. Why would I want to go in the military to get beaten up? Actually, I was taken down to the office by my, um, what I thought was my father at the time, taken to the office, did a test. The physical side, I was way, way out in front and um, ended up in the Junior Leaders Regiment, Royal Artillery, Bramcutt, Nuneet and Warwickshire. And that's how it all started for me. And I'll be honest with you, if I could have had 50 pounds in 1965, to buy myself out, I would have bought my me, but nobody would give me it. And fifty pound in nineteen sixty-five, I think you'll agree, UK-wise, was a lot of money. And that's yeah. how it all started. Wow! Right. And did you and did you learn about the SAS after you joined the army, or did is that something you knew about? Uh, I like I, I'm not sure how things were done in those days in terms of uh, you know secrecy and that kind of thing. No. Um, to be honest, in 1965, you know, um, I never heard of the SAS. Um, even when I left boys, I never heard of the SAS. What I did, I went into the Royal Artillery. And then after a couple of years um, in 49 Field Regiment, just a normal um, artillery unit, I started to get itchy feet and wanted to do something else. So... Actually, I applied for the commandos, which is just down the road from where I am now. And I ended up doing a commando selection and passing that and going into 2-9 Commando Royal Artillery. That's where I really got my teeth into what the SAS were about. And that was in 1977. So wow. I did my commando selection. I passed it. I then went to and did the Royal Marine um, commando uh, selection down at Limston. I passed that, and then I had four years in two nine commando, and two of those years I was actually one of the physical training instructors down there, teaching little commandos to become big commandos, if you like. <laughs> and that's really where I got itchy feet for a second time. And in 1977, I volunteered for the SAS selection um, of which I really wanted to pass that. I was frightened of failing it. I hadn't how failed old it. were you, Rusty? Sorry, how old were you then? Um, 37. Oh, oh sorry, you that- I beg oh, your right. pardon. In 1977, I was um, 27. Right, so still a good age. Yeah. So uh, for me, it was then or never. You know, a lot of the yeah. guys that I did selection with, it was when the the parachute brigade in the UK disbanded, lots of um, disgruntled um, para-regiment guys not knowing what to do. And we all ended up, a lot of us, on a 
you know, a selection at the same time. And it was a good selection, a really good bunch of guys. And we had a reasonable pass rate on that where normally it was much, much less, maybe as little as 10%, um, sometimes even less than that. But we had some really um, tremendous guys on it. And, um, you know, we had a good pass rate and became friends ever after. And that's how it all started. And did you guys from that selection, Rusty, did you go on and serve in the same squadrons? Because I know people get split down, but sometimes you're lucky enough to keep that, yeah, you know, that same... Yeah, there was four squadrons in, in the regiment. Um, myself, uh, another iconic fella, if you like, John Mack, the guy with the big moustache. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I he think did he, my... he was breaching, right? He was a breacher in that uh, NBC seats. Yeah, uh, John, he did my commando course with me. Oh, wow. So, so I knew him from 73, 74, and then we split. And then we met up in the middle of um, uh, the Brecon Beacons in 1976 doing pre-SAS selection, which, if you remember, was the hottest, hottest um, ever recorded weather day after day up until 76 and from that day to this is still the hottest weather ever and we, that's when we did our um, pre-selection and that's when i met john wow once we did the selection for the sas in 77 me john and a couple of others we all ended up together in eight troop in b squadron it couldn't have been better oh, wow that's awesome that's um, yeah it's amazing isn't it and then you ended up on that same job well, I and think, obviously sev several other jobs, but you ended up on that same. Yeah, John yeah. Uh, John and the guys, uh, you see four guys on the balcony at the beginning. Every, uh, probably the most um, iconic shot of every everyone with the four guys on the balcony where it goes bang, big explosion, part of the balcony gives away, and then John and the guys enter on the first floor or to rescue the hostages, in they went and did, you know, the business inside. And I can't imagine in the world there's many people, I mean, unless they've been living on another planet, which actually could divide people down a bit in this day and age, who haven't seen that clip. No. It's... Like, you know what I mean? Even if you've just seen it, because it's just one of those, I mean, I was only, I think, when what year was it again, Rusty? Because I think I was only about four. 1980. Yeah, so let's see. Yeah, so yeah, I was five. I was five. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, my parents, because I remember, I actually remember, um, like Maggie Thatcher more than anything when she started to make her, this is how we deal with terrorists thing. It was like, wow, you know, and that's, that was my first look at her who would later then become an icon for me, you know, someone to look up to. But well, yeah. she, you know, everybody's got their favorites and I'm afraid yeah. she is my favorite and I oh, wish cool. we had somebody like her now. <laughs> yeah, I do. And I actually no. thought, I know this is going off piste, when I first saw Theresa May, I thought, I thought, I thought another Maggie and then it... I'm actually losing... She I'm, just I'm, had that strength. I, I've just lost whatever you said there. It just went into uh, a mush mode. All right, have you got me back? Yeah, that, that's uh, you're back now, uh, yeah? Yeah, my point was, I was just saying that when I first saw Theresa May, I actually, I kind of hoped that she was going to be another another sort of Maggie, and then it doesn't seem to have transpired like that, because I think, like, Maggie always said history would be kinder to her, and I think we won't see the likes of um, her for quite some time. 
no, it's a shame. Um, yeah. You know, um, she put the country right. She stood up for it. Yeah. And um, everything she did, she went for. Um, and, you know, at, at, at that moment in time, all those years ago, everything started to go right. Um, yeah. And, of course, she was out the front there. You know, there's a lot of people wouldn't have let us go that day that have talked them, you know, um, yeah. forever in a day. But she stood her ground. What she was she like when you met her? Brilliant. I met her a few times. I got a few wow. pictures with her. Um, absolutely. Iron Lady? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but would you follow her? Yes. And that's what it's about, I'm afraid. And she loved she loved the SAS, didn't she? She had a real kind of... I don't know. You could, you could. She was extremely proud. You could see, like, even the the sort of pictures that were ever released. She always had like a beaming, a look of pride on her face. Yeah, I think I've seen a few pictures, or at least one, where she was with like, uh, you know, a troop of guys from the SAS. I've got that picture. Yeah. That there's four of us on it. Is that you, Rusty? Is that oh, uh, yeah, Rusty? There's, there's, there's four. I've got pictures with most of them with the royalty and stuff, you know. But there's four. Um, there's quite a few different people got pictures as well, by the way, because when she came to the camp um, where we took the pictures, then, you know, having done a demonstration um, to show what we do, and then yeah. afterwards there'd be a little picture shoot with respirators on and stuff, and, um, you know, she'd take a few pictures with people, yeah. As as did quite a few of the royals and stuff. Um, yeah. Over the years, yeah, that's what happened in my day. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting uh, on the on the British side with, you know, the royal family and and the the people who have been the face of the country for so many years. How they seem to be so involved with the military and and they really seem to genuinely care about you know what's going on with service members and that kind of thing. I find that really incredible. Uh, I mean, you see some of it in the, over here in the states, but I, I don't think it's quite like uh, the royal family out there in the UK. No, there's a lot. There's a lot of history, isn't there, when it goes back in the royal family for people serving with such, you know, going back over the years. And there's Lord Mountbatten and stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then you come forward, um, having seen what happened to them, and it's it's a bit more, I would say, um, closer knit. Uh, you know, they're there in London. We're just up the road. We're not thousands of miles away, along with, you know, Britain's not that big in comparison. And it's like a close-knit sort of, um, not family, but a close-knit yeah. unit, if you like. We've got the royals there who uh, are there to do what they do for the country, prime ministers there. And then you've got the military, all the different um, groups. I'm talking about my day now. It's all changed as it's been chopped and changed over the years. But in my day, that's how it was. And you're right. You know, we we, we saw them quite a lot and, and demonstrations for royalty and stuff over the years. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I wish we still had that. Yeah, and it's it's really cool. I mean, the the um, so the SAS was around in in. Uh, World War Two, and I, I believe they disbanded after right after the war, and then kind of came back together. But the whole counterterrorism training that didn't start until the mid seventies, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, yeah, the, that's right. The just just the early to mid seventies. That was just before just before I got there, really. 
Um, as I say, I got there in 77, but there, there was earlier incidents. If you go back to Mogadishu and um, when a couple of advisors from the SAS went over with GSG-9, um, the German counter-terrorist team, um, when the hijacking took place over there, yeah. and then it came forward, and then there was a chance, you know, that um, just around about 79, 78, 79, 80, the counter-terrorist team was costing a fortune to run, you know. Um, you're talking about shooting live ammunition every day, um, you know, not just one person, but big groups of people to, because we don't use blank. We use live ammunition in training, right. you know, and that is reality. So that then sort of took hold. And then there was strong talk at one time that the counter-terrorist team in particular may have been going to be axed as it went on into the late seventies. Hmm. And then of course we hit um, 1980 when the Iranian embassy siege itself took place. Well, that was such a success that all around the world, they wanted to be trained by SAS and counterterrorism. Right. So of course now it's, you know, for the government, this is now, you know, a big deal. So we've had a good success. Everybody wants us. And then all of a sudden, you can't move in Hereford because the camp at one stage, you could, a civilian could walk through from one side of it to the other side and catch a bus. Well, I'm afraid that, you know, and that is a fact. And then yeah. the late 70s into 80s, it became Fort Knox, you know, um, and for various reasons, you know, and that is a, that, that's when the camp was in the center of Hereford. You know, you could walk through it, get on one side and walk through the other side. Nobody would check you. And that was a fact. But you yeah, can't do really that now. And you couldn't do that after 1979-80 either. But then as well, Rusty, people were still cutting around in uniform and it was it was actually OK. You know, people were on trains and that's right. And that was all yeah. normal. But obviously the threat that then came from terrorism, so that that's stopped all of that. Yeah. And when I got there, you know, um, used to do the normal thing, you know, wear your uniform, but I used to put a jacket over the top anyway when I was driving into work, maybe. Um, yeah. I didn't I didn't particularly walk around in the middle of Hereford, but there was no, I don't remember any rules and regulations saying you can't, you must not, until you're right into the, after the siege thereabouts, I remember it changing and <clears throat> people would come into work normally, get changed inside and get changed before they went home. Um, and, and that's the way it all changed because Hereford is only a small, it's a small yeah. city, a small cathedral city. So a lot of people know a lot of people there. And of course, but you didn't take the chance. It was easy to go in in a tracksuit, maybe get changed in there, go and do your thing, go home later on. Uh, and that, that's the way it all changed, yeah, for definite. So, Personal security became a big issue. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously in particular when we um, when the troubles um, flared up, you know, you had um, attacks on the mainland and then it became even more apparent, didn't it? Well, that's right. You know, I mean, we were backwards and forwards to Northern yes. Ireland. Um, and, of course, we, you went there for a number of months, 
and then you come over and swap over with a different squadron, come back and go around a cycle um, before you'd end up back out there again. And that happened, you know, year in and year out in my time, in particular through the 70s yeah. uh, into the 80s. And, um, you know, everywhere you went, you had to be very vigilant. And especially when you're over the water, uh, as we call it, Northern Ireland, uh, is, um, again, you had to be pretty vigilant all the time. How do you feel now, Rusty? Do you feel like sometimes with everything that's gone on sort of since that time and, the, you know, we've been involved in the Falklands, obviously the Iraq, Afghanistan, all the stuff in Africa, do you think sometimes people forget about Northern Ireland? And I don't, and clearly not, I'm not saying I do, but I just get this sort of, people seem to, they don't really know, like I know a lot about it because I'm ex-military, but people who aren't tend not to really be interested in it, but it bothers me. You don't... Um... The thing is, when something disappears out of the the media, the limelight, as it used to be, wasn't it? You know, in the seventies yeah. and so on. Yeah, for sure. It, everything was Northern Ireland, and um, and then things sort of changed and moved on as the time went on. Um, and I think that we should never forget about Northern Ireland because of the troubles that happened there. And um, you know, lots of the guys spent a lot of time there. I lost some good friends over there. Yeah. Um, over the years and it should never be forgotten but at the same time you know it could kick off again if it wanted to um, yeah. you know and I hope it doesn't because a lot of people went through a lot of hardship um, I had a lot of good friends in Northern Ireland and still have and um, it would be a shame if they went anywhere near back to what it used to be and I just hope that never happens yeah because it's almost like we've, you know we've got we've got enough to face haven't we at the minute of course. Without, you know, without going... Stretched to, to the limits. Yeah, yeah exactly. They've, they've cut the army down. They've cut the... They've cut everything down, basically. But the trouble is, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's more... <laughs> there's certainly more on the cards, um, you know, in the likes of the different parts of the world right. where people yeah. where we're still involved in. But they've cut it down. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we put this huge ship out today, wasn't it? The, the new... Um, aircraft carrier yeah and uh, people are saying what are they going to fill it with <laughs> well, well you know this well we'll be signing up again rusty that's what they're going to fill it with we'll have to maybe get put our papers back in <laughs> well maybe there's something we don't know about but um you know what, what are they going to fill it with all those aircraft all those people all those um so, yeah. soldiers and sailors and where are they going to get them from Right. Well, it's it's an issue. It's interesting. It's an issue that uh, America is facing as well, with yeah. the uh, you know they they've made cuts in the military and everything, and but the the um, special operations apparatus is still active, um, you know, and and they're they're deploying to so many different countries, and they're yeah. they're really stretching thin uh, because it's the same you know group of guys and you know going back and back back back, and it's really having a like wearing down the the forces, you know, with with such a small group seeing so much action over over so many consecutive it, years, you know. It will do, you know. Um, and it's the same, you know. The, the SAS, you know, they're right. they're not a big unit. They're not a big unit, um, but they're deployed over the place. I don't uh, I don't chase around where they are or anything. I do know some stories and stuff, but right. I don't comment really on what they do this day and age because. 
I, I'm quite happy commenting on the stuff when I go back in time. I think the op security and stuff, OPSEC as you call it, I think that should be maintained. Right. And um, and it's in the best interest of all the, you know, all the serving people in particular, their families and so on. Um, nobody wants to be the person who says something and, you know, loose lips sink ships, as they say. Right. And, you know, but I, I agree, the, the Americans... Rusty. Sorry. <laughs> Hopefully not what? that new shit. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you it's going to take some sink in that one. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I, you know, the Americans are the same. You know, I've got some good American friends and stuff um, and some good Brit friends. And it, you, you just hope one day, don't you, that you wake up and you think, ah, that's better. But actually, <laughs> how far away is that day? Uh, I'm not yeah. sure I'll ever see it, I'll be honest. Um, it should be a real shame after all the stuff we've done over the years. You know, I spent 27 years in the army, um, and you, you feel like 27 years. Um, did we move forward, or did we move back, or have we moved at all? You know, uh, and yeah, it's a shame. I, I think like that too, Rusty. Is but I, I really think, you know, I think that like my military service changed me for the better, and I think God. And I felt like I had achieved stuff, and I and I still do do now. But then, I almost feel like I grew in a different way to parts of the country, and I feel like, well, where the fuck have they been? You know, as in, I don't mean That's, where they've been physically. I just mean, yeah. well, how come my mindset is where it's at, and theirs is completely off piste? Well, you know, it's it's quite well, hard to deal with. It it is hard to deal with, and as I say, any. It, it, you know, when I think back now, if I'd had that fifty pound, I'm glad I never had the fifty pound. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> deep inside, um, it would have been a short-term get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, what would I have done with the rest of my life? I've no idea because I came from the north of England. Um, and I'm just glad I never got that fifty pound, and I'm glad really that I had a chance to serve my country in the end. Um, but I never ever thought it would turn out all those years ago, as we're seeing it right now. Yeah, there's an honour to serve, isn't there? And even you know, that, whether it's the police, wherever you're serving, that it should be an honour to serve your country. Yeah, my well, mine was as a 15 year old, as I say. You know, um, I didn't know any better. I didn't. And you post-war too, as well. Yeah, uh, you know, I I lost my, all my friends, which I had in Carlisle and stuff, and all of a sudden here I was, you know, this little guy, <laughs> um, going into this place where they shouted at you and things. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought, Christ, what am I doing here? You know, um, all I wanted to be was a footballer. That's all I wanted to be. So talking um, about that, were you really talented then? Because you, you know, you've obviously you've got a passion for football. Um, yeah, I've, I, I was offered trials. I played for the, I grew a bit in boy service. I grew up to about five foot, 10, 11 before I left, put on about, I don't know, a stone or two and became a football addict. Really. I, I played for civilian teams when I was serving, I right. played for the, uh, I represented the British army in the end, which is probably as high in amateur level as you can go. Yeah. And I've still had the likes of, um, uh, Arsenal. West Ham, Sheffield, back in the early early 70s, when I was sort of at my prime, if you like, and not involved too much with um, with commandos and 
that was my when I was really football all the time, and it changed my life. And uh, if it had been the money that, that's on the football table now, you know, when you think back to those days, Jimmy Greaves, a big star of the day. Well, he was yeah. on a hundred pound a week all them days. These guys are on three hundred thousand a week. You know, who Crazy, wouldn't take it? a chance and go? Um, and but yeah, uh, my life revolved around football. Certainly in in the first number of years, you know. Before uh, you were storming embassies, yeah. Rusty. Well, even, even, even then I was playing football. <laughs> even then I was playing football, and you know I, we had a very good SCS football team as well. Um, so yeah, but you know that's just part of my life and the life I came through. I was lucky. And really, I had to work for everything. I, you know, nothing was sort of ever given to you on a plane. You had to work for it. Right. Um, and that's what we did, and I enjoyed it. Right. Well, things it's are kind of things like, are better. It's old school, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, if you had to work for your food or whatever it is, you know, it tastes better at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. right, John. Yeah. Yeah. And- right. Can we go into that day? Are we allowed to go into that? Um, that sort of I could say how, how the day kind of started and uh, uh, kind of build up to. Sorry, I've I just lost you a little bit there. Go into what? Sorry. Oh, um, can we get talk about that iconic day? You know, the, the sort of build up to. Yeah. If you can talk about, I don't know why it seems to drift down a little bit, and I'm struggling to hear. But when you're talking like that, it's fine. Okay. That like that. That's okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Right, cool. Did you hear me then, Rusty? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. I, I don't. Can't th- now. I, I, don't, I don't think ah. he heard you when you when you asked a question. All right. <laughs> oh no, I didn't hear the question. I heard you say. All right, you sorry. <laughs> I was saying, is it okay if you? Because um, I know, obviously, all the listeners you'll want to hear about the build-up for that that day. That's the day, the iconic day of the embassy siege. How, okay. You know, at what points were you, you know, you, you said you, you took us through that you were up and down and, and doing the different sort of drills. And then at what point did you think it's on? You know, how did, what was it like? Well, I know we're all the film, but. Yeah, the first, um, the first couple of days uh, were strange, really, because we didn't get a lot of information. You know, there was no mobile phones and stuff in them days. So, from when we got the call out and left Hereford and then went down to London, um, eventually ending up in Regent's Park Marrocks, um, that was sort of the first holding area for us. But within two days, we didn't get a lot, uh, a lot of information, nothing concrete, really. You can understand that. Hello? Yeah, I got you. Hello? Yeah, sorry, uh, I was just saying, c- can you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, okay. I, I the thought I'd lost you altogether are. then. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just, we're just listening intently, Rusty. Sorry. Oh, okay. Forgive right. our right. silence. For, yeah. I'll just crack on then until you tell <laughs> yeah. me to stop. Well, in the first couple of days. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If yeah. you start interrupting on this stage, yeah. <laughs> in the first couple of days, um, the first day really was a day of nothingness. You know, we, we left there, we got down into London covertly. Um, and then into Regent's Park Barracks, where we sort of set up a, a forward operating base, really. But we were still four miles thereabouts from the actual Iran embassy itself, which is a long way if 
let's say a hostage had been shot and um, they started maybe killing people. Um, and as I say, we didn't get much information. So we're all sat there, two teams, red and blue team. And the idea was to get one team in very quickly. Um, and that was the red team. Um, day two of the siege, that was early hours of the morning. They went into number um, 1415 Princess Gate, which was the uh, Royal College of General Practitioners. That was now our holding area. But we had a team there who made a quick skeleton plan of what would happen if they had to go and achieve the mission, which was to rescue the hostages. So they're in there on their own. We're in Regent's Park Barracks, twiddling our thumbs, cleaning our weapons, um, waiting for our chance to get down and join them. Well, that didn't happen for another 24 hours um, because we had to get down there covertly. So red team had been on uh, sort of standby down there for a whole 24 hours. When we finally got there, blue team took over from red team. Um, and the plan, as you go along, you just... We call it a skeleton, really. And then as you get more information, you put some more meat onto the skeleton. And yeah. the plan very rarely changes a great deal. So you're getting information, you're getting intelligence, um, and then you're building your own sort of little ops room with all these, um, uh, you know, uh, how many terrorists are there, how many hostages are there, what weapons are they carrying, and so on, and you're building up a picture for individuals. And and that went on along with outside agencies while the spooks down in London were putting their um, listening devices and stuff into place, trying to figure out more information, more intelligence that can help us if we need it. Because at the end of the day, people have to remember, and sometimes they don't, is that this was a police operation supported by the SAS from day one. So it's still a police operation, but we're the guys who are trained to go in if required. We're now sat next door, nice and quiet, watching the snooker um, <laughs> over, over that period of time on the build-up to the last day. We're making our own plans. We've got our own teams. Now, over the next couple of days, it was backwards and forwards to Regent's Park Barracks for one of the teams, either the red team or the blue team, which had now done a 12-hour shift each. Nobody knew how long it was going to last. So the guys that are on standby would be waiting there in case they were um, called for. The other team would nip back to um, Regent's Park Barracks, do some more training, have a look at maybe... What if they require a coach? Um, let's go and do some coach drills just in case. So you've got an assault that could go in on the building, which is the Iranian embassy itself. But at this stage, you haven't killed anybody. So it's still negotiations. And and, and we're, the whole of the days we were there, there was no time wasted. The only time you sat down next door was when you were on standby, dressed in your full kit, ready to go at the, at the drop of a hat. So that plan um, was being built on. Um, how are we going to do it? And at the same time, the information and the intelligence that's coming from different sources, i.e. police 
police snipers may have a picture of somebody who came to a window and then you've got hostages that were being released. They would give us a little bit of intelligence of what they thought, where they were in the building. Because remember, this um, Iranian embassy, it had 56 rooms on six floors, if you include the basement. So it's quite a substantial um, building to have six terrorists in. And at the start, 25 hostages. So we're trying to pin down where they are in the building, you know, how, who would clear each floor to achieve the mission to rescue the hostages. So that was going on all the time by both teams. And then as time wore on in today for, uh, sorry, the, the night of, uh, of nighttime of day three, which is the um, third the second, sorry, the 2nd of April, we were up on the roof and we were just on standby. Again, nobody had been um, reported killed, but there were times when the police and the negotiators felt a bit, oh, it's not going right here, stand to. Well, all that meant was get your kit on, get into your position. The next words you'll get, if you have to go, will be something like go, go, go. And that would be it. You'd go and do the best you could to rescue the hostages. However, it didn't happen like that. It went on. And as the time wore on, our plan was really coming together um, for what we wanted to do. And it looked like at one stage they may well throw their hand in and say, OK, we've got what we came here for. You know, they've got all the publicity in the world, everything. But they didn't. They didn't do that. They, 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 they saw it out yet again. So the following um, day, um, day four, you know, things went up and things went down um, on negotiations. And yet again, it was stand to stand down. So and th this was the pattern all the way through. And it's always a police operation. As we go into day five, I'm already now, um, I'm already blue team commander now because the guy I took over from, Roy, he then went to do and make the distraction charge if it was going to be used, which is the one you heard, the big loud bang that initiates everything on the final day. So he left our team. I got pushed up one. I took over from Roy. <clears throat> so I'm now the team commander. Nothing changes. We've got the same plans. We've got the same guys. We just, we haven't got a staff sergeant. We've got Rusty, who's a Lance Corporal. And that's how it works in the SAS. I was the next senior rank, if you like, to the staff sergeant. Um, oh. so, and that's only in the blue team. The red team had a full complement. A lot of our guys, in the, which were blue team, were away training foreign nationals abroad. And they weren't going to bring them back for this one operation because it may have lasted five minutes. You know, nobody knew. So we're now into day four or five. Same sort of thing. Um, and then when they heard the shots, they couldn't prove that anybody had been killed. So even though they heard the shots, there was no proof of murder. And until there was proof of murder, it's still a police operation. 
And that's exactly what happened. Um, so we go through day five, the same type of thing going on. Negotiations are going on, stand to, stand down. But at no stage were we going to attack and rescue the hostages unless there had been proof of murder on British soil and we didn't have that. So then we go forward if you into day six, um, the 5th of May, 1980. Um, same thing, we sat there watching snooker. We've had more or less a final um, set of orders where you get, you know, who's doing what and so on in your teams, which you've all been rehearsing. And you, you're really ready to go, you know, and you have been ready to go. But yet again, it wasn't until the shots were heard. And I think you remember if you've watched the, when you see the doors open and then you see the press attache from the Iranian embassy, Mr. Lavasani. Remember seeing him get dumped on the steps? Yeah. Yeah. Outside the front. And then the police go down with the stretcher, put him on there, take him away, proof of murder. Um, and now the negotiators know that it's a different ball game. Everything changes. Max Vernon, um, the head negotiator, it's now a different ball game. And he tells them it's now a different ball game. And Salim, the leader, goes, I know, Mr. Max. So oh. um, we don't hear this, by the way, but this is what happened. We are next door. We are prime now. Snooker. Yeah, we are prime now. We know very quickly that there's been a murder in there. They've proved it. They've thrown the guy out on the step. So who else are they going to shoot? It's day six. They're restless. They're tired. Some of them hadn't eaten properly. And everybody knows that eating habits affect, you know, the way, the, the way your body changes and... The, the leader, Salim, isn't a very strong character. The guy, Faisal, the second in command, is trying to, you know, he, he's the guy who's the bully. He's the guy who shot um, Lavasani three times on the stairs. So the, the picture now is we didn't have to be mentally, our mental adjustment from day one is right, this is it. This has to be it. Unless they threw their hands up and ran out, this has to be it. All the guys, you didn't have to say anything to them. Everybody knew what they are going to do. The operation was handed over <coughs> from um, the chief superintendent, Dello, Commissioner, sorry, Dello, head of the, the police on the operation. He handed over control to Colonel Mike Rose, who was oh, our wow. colonel. And Mike Rose said, I want you to sign a piece of paper that you hand it over to me. And he did. He signed a piece of paper. So all of a sudden, it's no longer a police operation. It's an SAS operation. 
and the police are now there to assist us. So it turns around <clears throat> um, 360 degrees, really. It's gone totally the other way. So it's now our operation, proof of murder. Um, we then get told so to on get... That, so you just, just quickly, so does, the, does, that, does that change anything? Like, it's a police operation. There's, there's kind of tactically and stuff, and, and they're not trained as you were trained. No. So for it to then come over to you, it, makes, it kind of sounds a bit strange, gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling of this is our thing now. We don't have to, we're not supporting something that we really don't, you know, no, we, we are trained differently. Support, as, when I say yeah. support, they, they wouldn't just get up and walk away. Um, what they did is they weren't going to go and rescue the hostages. Yeah, they were there all the way through to see what was going to happen, and if they'd have walked out the door, we would have gone into quiet mode and disappeared out of sight, um, and the police would have dealt with it. However, there has to become a point where the police haven't got the guys that were trained like us. Yeah. So they've done their bit. The negotiators worked very hard to try and get a peaceful settlement. And that would have suited most people. Proof of murder changed it. Everybody knew that. So when we get told to get into our final assault positions, it took 16 minutes to get into them covertly. Wow. That's a guy getting onto their abseil harnesses and stuff, ready to abseil down to the second floor. We've got the guys at the front of the building next door. Balcony to balcony, which we've all seen and we've talked about earlier. We've got my guys at the back door, 10 of us, six with me and four guys behind them to go and clear the basement. And then you've got the other guys to do the other floors um, within the embassy. The idea was to hit everything simultaneously, the, 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 all the floors and the basement but the basement had no access from the outside. You had to follow us in through the library and then go downstairs into the basement to clear the basement. And as I said, it had 56 rooms on six levels. So Jesus. we have about 30, 32 to 34 guys ready to go, abseiling from the top, going in to the third floor from the, um, the, the light well, going in from the back where we went in from, going in from the front balcony on, on level one, which was balcony to balcony. And that was all going to happen simultaneously on the command, go, go, go. And the big, huge explosion you hear to start it. So if you didn't hear the go, 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 you're going to hear that explosion. So it's double-edged there. We've got two, and that's exactly what happened. And as soon as that happened, it's 16 minutes to get into position. And then... When everybody gave that they were in position, the squadron officer commanding Hector gave go, go, go. Big, loud explosion. And then all of our guys went into the building to rescue the uh, 19 hostages that were left. And there were six terrorists in there. So... Um, once we were inside the building, it took 11 minutes from go, go, go to getting in, clearing every single room, accounting for all the hostages, killing five terrorists. One terrorist got out. 
and that was to get everybody out the back and accounted for in 11 minutes. Wow. So the bulk of the terrorists where they thought they were going to be um, up on the, the first and second floor, most of them were expected to be on the second floor, and actually that's where um, that's where they were. The leader, Faisal, was on the first floor. Um, so there's three up on the second floor, one on the first floor, and the guy that came down to me on the stairs, uh, Faisal, the, the guy that, that had shot them, um, when he got to me, and there's a couple of guys around me, I just spun him around, saw the hand grenade and shot him, and then there's a couple more guys um, put some bullets into him. And then he just fell to the bottom of the stairs. At the same time, there was all these hostages and um, screaming and shouting, as you can imagine, coming from the second floor. And where the skylight had been blown in with the charge, lots of people slipping on the carpets, crying. There's smoke in the air. There's gas in the air, which we were using. Um, very uncomfortable for people who've never used it. Um, and they were being shepherded down, identified, and taken out to the back. And everybody ended up at the back of the embassy on the, the big green stretch of garden at the back where they were all being identified um, and then plastic cuffs put on them, um, male and female separated, looking for any terrorists, <coughs> looking for uh, hostages. And that took some time at the back. And then, um, as that sort of happened, there's one guy, a guy called Fauzi Nejad. He was a terrorist that got out. Uh, he was identified out the back and uh, taken away by the police. Um, the rest of them were all separated. And really, once, because the building now on top of everything else is well ablaze, you know, so inside the building, um, it happened very quickly that, yes, there's a lot of gas around. Yes, there was um, a lot of shooting. Yes, there was um, was going off. Um, and, it, and it went on like that, you know. And, of course, they didn't have respirators on. We did. Yeah. So they're spewing up on the stairs. They're trying to be helped out. They've never seen anything like this before. How, how was your vision, Rusty? Well, because you know that would have you're wearing a respirator, but it would have still been. Was oh, it still? What was that like? Trust me. Um, I mean, we trained in. You know, what we yeah. were, what we were trained in, what we were fighting in that day. We trained in for months and months. So you get used to it. You've probably worn one yourself. The old S6 respirator it was in yeah, my day. Not the, not the S10 as it is now. Yeah. It was the old S6 one. And you get, you get used to them to some degree, but I can't, for me, mine started steaming up before we got the go, go, go when we we're in a final assault position. And I was trying to clear mine. <laughs> That's before we even got in. <laughs> um, and it, different people got it at different times. I remember Johnny Mac saying to me, you know, he said uh, I lifted. He said I. He said I had to lift it up to clear it. He said no, I got was a great big lung full of, um, you know, CS gas. Um, so it, it's difficult, but yeah. it proved that it can be done, and we did it, and we did have all the kit left on. 
Um, I left my gloves on the table where I was watching the snooker. I didn't put them down my body armor that time. I forgot. Right, and that's, yeah, that's, so, because I, I know you went really quickly, but I want to know, you're a bit of a legend for this, and you went over it as if it, oh, it was no big deal. But I know one of the boss had to come down. I, I've just lost you the, again there. Yeah. Say that again, Chantel. I know you went past it. This is one of the things that, legendary for is that you managed to identify a terrorist that was trying to come out of the hostages and obviously took him down. The story could have been very different had that terrorist got out because he was carrying a grenade, wasn't he? Yeah, but he didn't get out. No, there's only what one thing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were on about you've, you've, you've sort of the... No, you've got... I'm, just, I'm actually saying because you're quite um, humble about it, which is brilliant, but what I'm saying is you went past it quickly. That was a a really significant moment when you ha- when you identify terrorist. But it, it, it's to be honest, you, you know, when you've been looking at the um, the pictures on the um, the mug shots, if you like the, um, the yeah. photo fits, we had perfect ones of them for each of the terrorists, uh, each uh, six terrorists. Uh, so there's one, and on that it told you what weapons he had. Um, what they were carrying, a scorpion or handgun, or grenades. By the time we went in, we had that type of information. Your, your personal job is to go and have a look at that and make sure that you're familiar with the faces. Well, there was a number of females, but there was no female terrorists. So yeah. the females on my side of it, I had no interest in a female's a female, and I knew she wasn't a terrorist. So that was okay. The guy that was dressed in the olive green, okay, trying to shield, shield his face a little bit on the way down with his other hand, most people wanted to get out. He was more interested in, and the, the shouts from above, the guys up on the balcony on the first floor and pointing, I had no idea what they were saying, absolutely no idea, but I could see there was pointing and shouting, but I'd be lying if I said I could hear anything. I couldn't um, because of the commotion that was going on there. It was only when he got down, and just like the rest of them that had come past me, you look at them and you just shove them down to the next guy. You know, there's four or five of us yeah. on the stairs, one at the bottom, and then there's a, like a, a, a big chain of guys um, leading out the back and they're pushing them one to one to one. And it wasn't until he actually got to me and I turned him around. Everything clicked in the same instance, and that's when I opened fire. And, of course, a couple of the other guys uh, opened fire as he went to the bottom of the stairs. So it was very, very quick split seconds but it's just the way it was no it's obviously it's brilliant that's why i wanted you to go over it again because it's one of those things it's it's not that it's just all those all the things that you guys did all clicked together and in such extreme sort of circumstances and it wasn't the best kit in the world and you you still that's the success of that raid is is again in history (laughs) i i actually do my um i've got um I've got a presentation that I do on this, um, and part of it when I wrap it up, or just before I wrap it up, everything we had, just everything, burnt. Rubber gas mask, nylon um, balaclava over the top of it, tanky coveralls made of um, bog standard what the tank regiment wore. Um, yeah. They burnt. Rubber boots. They burnt um, gloves. They burnt, and of course, everything we had on, and we set fire to the place. 
and we, we had some guys with burns. Yes, we did. Um, but everything we had burned, and it wasn't until after that when they had a big washout, wash shall I say, where they sat down and actually cleared the air and everybody got all the Gucci stuff, all the Gucci, you know, the Nomex yeah. fire, fireproof stuff. But we had everything we had, as I say, if you remember me saying early on that the team was almost, it could have folded, you know, because of the cost and was it cost effective? I don't know. But what I do know is as soon as that um, uh, mission was finished, everything changed, better vehicles, best kit you can get, good weapons, um, top-of-the-range ammunition, everything changed. So all of a sudden, where it may have gone, all of a sudden now it's the, it's the bee's knees, if you like. And, and you guys were um, already using the um, MP5 submachine guns at that point? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we used them. Um, a great weapon, in my opinion. Um, you know, ideal for that type of work. And um, that's what we used, yeah. And uh, when you afterwards was it was that the first time that you met uh, Margaret Thatcher? Um, yes, it was the first time, yeah. And what? And she she came over like to to, to talk to you guys after the um, after everything kind of died down. Yeah, we went. We went out the back, and then we, we disappeared upstairs, um, and very slowly, I say slowly, in slow time, we then, you know, got our weapons and stuff, and then packed all our kit, and then we went back to Regent's Park Barracks, where a lot of our big vehicles and stuff had been left. There's no way you could put them outside the embassy. Um, went back there, sat down, um, and then... We were told that the Prime Minister was coming over to speak to us and say thank you. Did you have a cup and of tea or a beer, Rusty? I had a beer. Um, <laughs> Pete, Pete, one, one of the guys, Pete, um, he, he brought a couple of crates of beer with his own money, I might add. Um, oh, wow. And he brought them over for the guys that weren't drinking. We had a couple of beers in there with me and John and stuff. Um, <clears throat> then Mrs. Thatcher came in along with uh, the Home Secretary, uh, Dennis Whitelaw. William Whitelaw, sorry, and Dennis Thatcher. Um, tears in their eyes, more or less. Um, oh, wow. And if you think about it, you know, a government was hanging on a thread. Um, you know, it could have gone either way. But she stood up and backed everybody. And then at the end, you know, we got the best result, if you like, if you want to call it a result. And the hostages were rescued. What did she say? Did she speak or...? Yeah, only a few words. Um, yeah. she, she was actually, she, I mean, I'm not being funny, but John asked her to sit down because <laughs> the um, the news came on and it, all of a sudden the, the front balcony where John and them were was, this is the first time it came on the news when she... Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, uh, she was there, yeah, on the, I think the BBC. It came on there and we were all looking at it going, what happened to the smoking off? You know, it never happened. I never realized until we got back to Regent's Park that the plan was to smoke it off. And somewhere in between, the plan had changed and it was never smoked off. And we saw it live on when Mrs. Thatcher was there just trying to say thank you very much. You know, very few few words. Um, and Dennis um, 
Dennis Thatcher was there beside her, and of course William Whitelaw, who what a nice guy, but he always looked like we used to call him Oyster Eyes because he's red raw, you know. <laughs> but you could see that, <laughs> you know, the guys have got nicknames for everything, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> so Oyster Eyes was. Um, <laughs> but red raw, you know. But you could see that um, job done, really. Um, yeah. uh, and it's simple as that, really. And then um, after that, we packed up, slow drive, and back over to Hereford in slow time. And I stopped to get a couple of burgers at the Greasy Spoon over by Gloucester. Wow. And then rolled up in Hereford somewhere around about one o'clock in the morning, I suppose. Job done. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> That's what you saying. It's, it's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing to hear you talk about it. Right, I mean, yeah, well, I can remember. I, I, I do a lot of lectures on it and stuff, and I've got a proper PowerPoint presentation with lots of good slides and stuff. So I, I've done a, quite a lot of it. I know it inside out, really. Um, I'm not talking from notes now. I haven't got any notes in front of me. No, and you can tell. That's so you can tell. Yeah. That. You know, this is all from um, my, my vivid memory. And, of course, Six Days of Film um, is... Well, yeah, that's what we're excited livid. about to do. Yeah. Sorry. What, what are your thoughts? Because you've seen it twice. I've spoke to you already about this. What do I've, you think of the film? I, I've seen what there was the first cut, um, which was... It's very balanced. But then the second time I saw, it, I said to him, "It's changed. The bits at the end." He said, "Yeah, well, this is it. This is it now. This is the one that's got all the rolling credits on." And so the the one I saw back in November um, didn't have any of that stuff on it. So they've they've just uh, you know it's better now. Yeah. Only only a tiny bit. They, they haven't done anything major to it. Um, and I saw it back in uh, June. Uh, sorry, yeah. How did first... you feel, like thirty odd years on, thirty-seven years on? How did you it's, feel watching it? It's, 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 you know, when your friends aren't there that were with you. Yeah. I, I saw it. I watched it on my own the second time. Just me. In they, they put it on for me in the um, one of the you know down in Soho. There's a lot of the little cinemas. Yeah, <clears throat> they played it down there, uh, which is where Icon Films are based down that area. So they put it on in there for me a second time, and um, I sat down and watched it on my own. <clears throat> and because it would have been nice, but some of them are dead now, obviously. Um, and, and when I was sat there thinking about it. And you do think about it. Um, it. It brings back all of what happened all that time ago. And whilst it's come out on the big screen after 37 years, um, it would have been really nice if everybody was still around to see it. Yeah. Because it's very balanced. It's not heavy-handed SAS and stuff. It, it, you know, where Mark Strong plays a part of... Um, well, you could see from the yeah from the trailers that it's just extremely well done. It promised me when I got involved with it way back 2014, the end of 14. Um, I was very skeptical about how it would end up, but I got to know, you know, the producer Matthew. Um, I got to know the director Tor, and I got to know the script. Me and the scriptwriter Glenn 
we're still in contact every week, especially about rugby, you know, um, New Zealand. And yeah. <clears throat> so we're still in. So, and I think from what I've seen, um, I'm not being funny, you know, I, I was advisor to some degree and a couple of guys I got to speak to the scriptwriter way back to see if there was um, a film in it. And he took away some notes and then he sent back um, a script to have a look at, 310 pages. <laughs> Christ of my. Um, anyway, I do it. What, what do I know about scripts? But I got the feeling that there was no running away with it and trying to big time it and stuff. Um, and then they went ahead and um, they picked out the actors to play people and stuff, and it's got quite a good cast. Um, yeah, it's got a very good cast. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, and uh, you know, I don't know if it could have been done any better from what I've seen. I, I really don't. I don't know if it could. Um, I think it's it's as good and as balanced as you can get it. You've got the you got the, the the likes of um, myself and John and a few of the guys, <clears throat> the camaraderie side of it. You've got Max and you've got Ray, his side of it, you know, when things are not going right and stuff. You've got Kate Aidy and, you know, and the whole thing is balanced. And then, you know, when it comes down to, it comes down to the final bit. Um, oh, I can't tell you too much, otherwise I might spoil it for you. But yeah. when it comes down to the final <laughs> bit, it makes you, it makes you, you know, <laughs> is that really 37 years ago? Yeah. Um, and it is. And I, I don't know. And they were quite open about it when they said it could have been done and they published it saying, that it could have been done by uh, by any uh, any any different way they could have done the story, but they chose to do the script, and they took the inspiration from a book, Go Go Go. Um, and they took the inspiration from that, and they decided the way they wanted to tell it. I was, I was a an open target. I'm the guy with no gloves. I'm the Lance Corporal that took over from Roy as, as a staff sergeant, uh, and so on and so on. So <clears throat> there was a story there, yeah. which, which was never meant to be. If I'd had my gloves on, arguably there may never have been a story. Yeah, no, you're it right. Seriously, you know, and I've said that, uh, you know, um, on more than one occasion. Had I put my gloves on that day, I would have looked like the rest of everybody else yeah because it would have been who are you i know it's saying there has, to, there has to be a story yeah you're right so and that was just coincidental but it's taken them 37 years to get it out and i really i'm not a film buff i don't watch many films i think jaws was the last one i watched <laughs> uh, <laughs> 76 i think um, so i'm not a film buff by any means but i do think it's a balanced film and I really hope that that's how people look at it. And I do know some other people who've been shown this, and I'm probably likely to see it another three times at least before it's released in August the fourth. So, I, well, I, think, I think I think our country needs this film. I think our country could really do with a film like this right now. Yeah, just to show, you know, yeah. to get some fucking pride back in well, to that flag. 
you know, and people actually realise. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm, I was apprehensive until it came and I saw it, and then I wondered what all the fuss was about because you've seen the trailer, haven't you? you it's amazing. Uh, Everyone uh, on my on my my Facebook page, people can't wait to see it. That people are excited yeah. about it. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, as I, I keep saying, I don't know if they could have made a better job of it. They've been, they've kept me informed on everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Icon as well as General Film Corporation New Zealand. <clears throat> and um, I, I'd love to, what, what I keep saying is I'd like to fast forward the clock round to like maybe Christmas 2017. Yeah. And see what everything, what what's happened. Yeah. Um, but I really think that um, they, they've taken an awful lot into account, and I really think they've done a, a, an absolutely great job on it. Um, and I, I was, you know, I went to New Zealand for two weeks with Jamie Bell, so he could become Rusty Furman. Yeah. And I took him off shooting, you know, and showed him how I did it, um, oh, wow. and the little tricks and trades, you know. And I showed him all that stuff. Um, so I had two weeks with Jamie and then integrated him into, we had the stuntmen and the actors as well out there who were doing mainly the stunts and stuff. And I worked with them. And then, of course, I've got a couple of Kiwi guys, XSAS guys and stuff. They were working out there with the stuntmen. And they, they, they spent a lot of time trying to get the little detail that we all wanted right in a little break for the snooker, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. It's all in there. Brilliant. So I think they've done an, a, a great job. I really don't know if they could do a better job. No idea, but it's there. It's ready to go. Well, I, and I wanted to say anyway, you know, I know you've, you've had thank yous from probably everyone in the world, but I'm glad that you didn't um, find that 50 pounds to get out. Rusty. <laughs> I was was heading for disaster at that age. And Um, then you met a whole new type of disaster. Yeah. Uh, Became the disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You were the disaster. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No, it's great. You know, I'm I'm glad. It's so cool to talk to you. I'm like a starstruck teenager. (laughs) It's just so cool to have you on. It's amazing. Thanks thanks for the invite. You know, I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, let us know when it goes out because my, my yeah. wife's an, an avid podcaster and stuff and she checked you guys out she said who is it and she, she went down and said <laughs> it's really professional <laughs> she said i'm just trying to i'm just trying to protect your image she said so, oh. but, but she does a, a lot of reading and a lot of podcasting and stuff um of which she'd like to to listen to it yeah but so um, john john's made this one really good where it's kind of it's not. It's not. There's not so much of a filter, so everyone gets to talk like yeah. as they should. And as you know, what I mean, or else it can get a bit too. I don't know if if you sort of behave yourself all through the podcast, it doesn't really work, especially for soldiers. Yeah. How long did they last for? Well, how long's this one? How John? Oh, yeah, right. It's a like hour and a half. Hour and until yeah, until we. St- until we stop talking. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, we can do <laughs> well, I'm still here. <laughs> John and I um, were talking. We would said one day it would be lovely to have like a a recon bar where people actually come in to to for interviews, but you just sat having a beer. 
Maybe not too many because that could get out of control. Yeah. But it'd be quite. Where, where, where's that at? Well, we don't know. We'll have to try and find somewhere. Oh, in London, you mean? Yeah. Any? Well, we did think of New York. Would be cool. Oh, that'd be all right. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if it ever happens, Rusty, we'll have, we'll have to have you on. Yeah, love it. Um, and of course, you know, we've got the um, we've got the Italian book coming out as well. Um, the yeah, Italian. Well, John, do you, go, if you just go, 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 go through. Go through all of your lists now, Rusty, if you'd like. Well, go, go, go. Um, that came out 2010, and it came out for the 30th anniversary, really. That's why it was brought out um, in 2010. Waited 30 years. That's the magic figure, you know, uh, disclosures and stuff. Um, oh, wow. People said they, people said they were going to do books. And I went ahead and did mine, um, and you know. It came out in 2010. Well, I've got them at home, um, uh, you know, um, and the, then there's a, <clears throat> the other one's called The Regiment 15 Years in the SAS. That came out in 2015. Um, that, that one's out now. But they're putting a tie-in book to the film to Go, 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 which I've seen the cover and stuff. That's due out, I think, Towards the end of July, prior to the um, release of the film, and that, that's yours, Rusty. It's go go go. Yes, okay. Uh, just so just like a, re- a re-release sort of thing. It's it's a paperback because people yeah. uh, see the books I've kept are the hardback edition, which you can't get or you can get, but they're very hard to get hold of. So I kept about I don't know 150, I suppose, which I've got kept to one side because, in my opinion. They are the best, and they're the collector's books. Yeah. The hardback, the paperback editions, people read them, and they put them on the, you know, um, they tend not to do a lot with paperbacks, but the hardback edition book, um, I can send you some copies, so if you haven't got them, over the pictures of the books and stuff. But I've kept them because I knew when the film come out, the, the people will want, and I've already got people, um, even though my website is just being updated at the moment, but... It, the the tie-in book is, it's you know you you like the cover. It's go go go, and it tied into six days because Brilliant. that's where they got the inspiration from, and that comes yeah. out by. And then everything will be on my website, which you've got anyway, haven't you? Yeah, I've got your website. What what, what right. is the website for anyone in your audience who wants to check it out? www rusty-firmin.com all lowercase and this week we should have the shop thing tied up on there because you're going to love the print it's not even on my website yet I got 50 the other day of this painting I had commissioned you know me with no gloves and the guys yeah right well I've had that a painting done of that oh wow I've got 15 50 prints the other day I've got not even I've not advertised them. These are people who know me. I've got eleven of them left, and <clears throat> I'm doing some book signings and stuff. And they all want me to bring the prints down because there's people buying ten at a time because um, it's 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 an A2 size print, um, and he's done an excellent job on it. And it's got Operation Nimrod on there, and it's got oh, wow. it's called the re- it's called the resolution. Put the um, video on to start with. It's behind me on the wall. I've had it framed. 
that's so that'll be on my website. That'll be on my website as well. Um, and I've had people. Um, I need to get more prints because I only got it at the end of last week. But I've just been wrapping them up and sending a lot down to Kent, where I've got quite a big following in Kent, actually. Um, so um, it's, it, they've done an excellent job of it, and yeah. I've signed them and sent them off to these people down there because I'll be down there doing them um, <clears throat> towards the. They're going to show the film, the six-day film, a week early. And they're going to show it for me um, to, uh, to to the Kent people on behalf of Pilgrim yeah. Bandits Charity, of oh, which wow. I was an ambassador for two years. Yeah. Um, before I had to give it up last round about last October. But as a thank you to John down there, I'm actually um, I've got the icon have said, "Yep, yeah, we can have it. We've got a cinema down there, <clears throat> and then it's going to come out on the 28th of July." which is a week yeah. before 4th of August, the real release. And I'm going to go down there and sign books and stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to say a few words before it to the audience down in Gravesend. Um, and then I'll sit there. So I'll have seen the film about five times by then. So I'll sit out in the foyer somewhere and sign books and sign uh, the prints and stuff. And um, yeah, and then stay down there as long as I, you know, I can. Yeah, so that's all. Amazing. The, yeah. So if anybody's around Kent, give us a bell. Uh, yeah, you'll see it, you'll see it a week early, in, you know, in Gravesend. Um, but already, you know, the tickets, uh, they're doing a ticket event and then the proceeds go to the, the charity. That And what a great uh, idea that is. That's a really good idea to raise cash. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. You know, I did a couple of years with them and then I had to quit. But John is an area representative who helped me out. When I went down to Kent, he'd set everything up for me. So I just have to come in, you know, minimal fuss, do what we had to do and go. And um, it was like a thank you to him. So he gets a pat on the back from the, yeah. not that he needs it, by the way, but, you know, it's, uh, but he'll make some money that night for the charity. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, and that's going ahead as well. And where can people pick up your book, a copy of, of your book? What would be the easiest the best, place? The, the best place to pick up a copy of my book will be to go... The, the, I've got a, a professional who's doing my website. She's she just doing the shop on it at the moment. If you wanted it straight away, all I need to my to me is an email address, and I send a request, and that's what I've been doing. But the best way would be to go direct to my website, go to the shop, and it'll all be on there within the next day or two, certainly by the end of the week, um, and it'll be on there. And you just click on there. It comes to me. They pay for it. I sign and send it off to anywhere in the world, as I've been doing um, with the last book and stuff. But can people get it on Amazon as well, Rusty? You just you get it on Amazon, yeah, but it won't be signed. Right, but still, no, it's great so that they know that that you will sign them. That that's really um, cool. Yeah, and you yeah. get them on Amazon. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. By the time and if anybody wants, if, if they want signed ones, basically the best, the quickest way is. To go to my website, I pick it up. It comes through. I sit down, sign the books, um, or the print, or whatever, and send them off. And and that's what I've been doing. Right. And um, by the time this this it, goes up, the, your your website shop should be up and running because we'll put this up in like two weeks or so. I mean, my website's up and running now. I mean, She's just area. finalizing the shop. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I've taken some, a couple of bits off it, and then I've tried to just keep it a few things, but they're the quality ones. Um, and then, of course, when the tie-in, when I get the proper cover of the tie-in book, that'll go on there as well. Um, and I should get that very shortly. So everything will be on my website as soon as possible. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, so I, I just want to thank you for taking out the time and, and coming on here. Uh, you know, obviously, as we said before, uh, that particular operation was, you know, very iconic and kind of set the standard for, uh, you know, the, pretty much the Western world moving forward in the in regards to counterterrorism and, and um, you know, that kind of thing. And obviously w with what's going on today, that's a, it's a huge deal. And, you know, we it's funny because we did a podcast a couple couple weeks ago where we, we brought up that we saw the trailer for it. And, and we yeah. were all talking about how, how great it looked and we couldn't wait to watch it. So it's really an honor to have you on. And um, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to come on here. And, and thank you for your service as well. Yeah, no, thanks very much for the pair of you. Thanks. And, if, yeah, you know, if, if ever I can do anything else for you guys, you know, this is the first podcast I've done. Um, you know, Soft Rep. Yeah. 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 They, they've asked me to do one for them sometime mid-July. Um, cool. So... Um, I spoke to my wife and she said, well, um, but they, they seem, you know, I, as I say, I don't deal in them, but they, they seem to be, um, quite it won't be as fun as, as this well. one, Rusty. It won't be no, as no. fun as this. Only because we always mincing around. <laughs> yeah. Now it's a shame I didn't have a couple of beers tonight. I know you get, I get right carried away and then think she yeah, I better not listen back to that. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I, I really, you know, I've enjoyed doing it. I'm glad. And I'm, I'm, no, thank I'm you very much for on. asking. You know, I hope it goes down well. Well, hopefully I'll see you and your wife at some point for a couple of, cup of tea or a beer as yeah. well. It'll be nice. Yeah, that's great. And I'll look you up when I, I get home. Yeah. And um, just the other thing is, um, if you could let us know when this goes out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. It, will, it, will it go out? When it, uh, excuse my ignorance. If it goes out, you said maybe the weekend. Yeah, no. What I'll do, Rusty, it gets it gets posted on Facebook as well. So you'll be um, tagged in the links, all of it. You'll be tagged. Yeah, you know exactly. And even oh, as soon as John puts out, I'll, he'll head, give me a heads up. I'll text you, or John can text you. So it'll come through to my Facebook, will it? Yeah, yeah, it'll go on because it goes because um, on Facebook Recon, that's the Global Recon's Facebook page. So ah, when right. I get that's off here, I was getting confused. That's... Yeah, that's just the Facebook page. Right. So there's a Global Recon and there's a Facebook. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. And then it goes on Instagram. Yeah, it goes all over the place. So yeah, I'll make you. You'll make. I'll make sure that you know exactly. And like I said, John will as well. That'd be great. Yeah, no, that'd be perfect. <laughs> All right. I look forward to it. And um, my wife's really looking forward to it because she asked me if yeah, it was going out live tonight. And I said, oh, not. <laughs> <laughs> and give her our best as well, Rusty. I will do, yeah. Thanks very much and have a good night. Right, yeah, you. you too. Take uh, care. You know, where I, you know where I am if you want us. Thanks, Rusty. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. It's such an honor to have Rusty Furman on the podcast and just being able to hear a firsthand account of 
how everything went down with the Iranian embassy siege leading up to it, and then the execution of the siege itself, which you can watch a part of it on video as the uh, news broadcasters were, were rolling when it went down. And it's really incredible footage. And you can see them breaching uh, into the building. Uh, famously, uh, the breacher, his name is John McAleese, and Rusty mentioned him earlier in the podcast as they went through selection together and then ended up on the same troop uh, in the SAS together. And uh, in the intro for this episode... You know, I played a little bit of audio in which you hear a news uh, broadcaster announcing that uh, John had passed away. That was a couple of years ago in 2011. And his son was killed in Afghanistan uh, by a roadside bomb. You know, it's just it's just like incredible. Uh, you know, John McAleese was such an iconic uh, figure in the special operations world and you know, Rusty had gone through so much and then gone through so much with him as a teammate. Uh, and I, I'm just incredibly humbled to be able to have someone like that on the podcast and you can hear from him yourself. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important to uh, tell these stories. So with that, we're going to close out this podcast. Uh, my website is www.globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. Uh, be sure to like on there. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account I have is Black Ops Matter. Uh, Chantel is on Facebook at Battleworn. Her Instagram account is Mission underscore Critical. I'm on there from time to time posting. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn to search Global Recon. If you have any suggestions or someone you might know, or have a contact with who would be who you think would be an interesting fit for the podcast, just send me an email to john at globalrecon.net and uh, we can talk further about it. Uh, as always, I encourage you guys to subscribe, uh, share, and download these episodes with your friends and family. Subscribe on iTunes. If you don't have an Apple uh, system or an iPhone, you can check us out on SoundCloud. Just search for the Global Recon Podcast. All right. So we'll see you guys in a few days with another episode. Peace.
it's such an honor to have Rusty Furman on the podcast and just being able to hear a firsthand account of how everything went down with the Iranian embassy siege leading up to it and then the execution of the siege itself, which you can watch a part of it on video as the uh, news broadcasters were, were rolling when it went down. And it's really incredible footage. And you can see them breaching uh, into the building. Uh, famously, uh, the breacher, his name is John McAleese, and Rusty mentioned him earlier in the podcast as they went through selection together and then ended up on the same troop uh, in the SAS together. And uh, in the intro for this episode... You know, I played a little bit of audio in which you hear a news uh, broadcaster announcing that uh, John had passed away. That was a couple of years ago in 2011. And his son was killed in Afghanistan uh, by a roadside bomb. You know, it's just it's just like incredible. Uh, you know, John McAleese was such an iconic uh, figure in the special operations world and you know, Rusty had gone through so much and then gone through so much with him as a teammate. Uh, and I, I'm just incredibly humbled to be able to have someone like that on the podcast and you can hear from him yourself. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important to uh, tell these stories. So with that, we're going to close out this podcast. Uh, my website is www.globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. Uh, be sure to like on there. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account I have is Black Ops Matter. Uh, Chantel is on Facebook at Battleworn. Her Instagram account is Mission underscore Critical. I'm on there from time to time posting. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn to search Global Recon. If you have any suggestions or someone you might know, or have a contact with who would be who you think would be an interesting fit for the podcast, just send me an email to john at globalrecon.net and uh, we can talk further about it. Uh, as always, I encourage you guys to subscribe, uh, share, and download these episodes with your friends and family. Subscribe on iTunes. If you don't have an Apple uh, system or an iPhone, you can check us out on SoundCloud. Just search for the Global Recon Podcast. All right. So we'll see you guys in a few days with another episode. Peace.